Hello, welcome to another episode of The High Ground, powered by Premier Companies. Ryan, how are you this morning? Doing fine, sir. How are you? I'm doing awesome. We also got we got two one guest in the podcast room with us, Mr. Harold Cooper, CEO, Premier Ag. And then we've also got from Rome, Italy, not Rome, Kentucky, or Rome, Georgia. Georgia, no, from <laughs> Rome, Italy, uh, Beth Bechtel, the uh, Deputy Director General of the Food and Agriculture organization of the united nations beth thank you for joining us oh my gosh it's a pleasure i can't wait to have this conversation with some really special people and old friends well that's uh, we're going to enjoy the morning it's going to be a lot of fun and, and or the afternoon i was so stressed about this time zone difference Ryan, he was I, having nightmares. I about was it. having bad dreams that we missed it for like a whole day. <laughs> and uh, whenever you clicked on that you was in the room here, I was like, "Yes, we made it." <laughs> so, but first, we got to start with the question of the day. And uh, we do this. This is one of the most popular things of uh, of the podcast. And then I'm going to turn it over to Harold Cooper to introduce you. Okay. But the question of the day, Beth, is: Can you tell us uh, your most favorite concert or festival that you've ever? attended oh that's easy backstreet boys las vegas residency oh that would <laughs> be fun <laughs> back streets back all right <laughs> that, was, that was free mortified, we got that for free mortified my family mortified my family but best one for me personally <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, Harold, what what was yours most uh, favorite concert or festival? He had all of two minutes to prepare this. We just told him about it. Well, under that definition, it'd be praise gathering. The Gaithers used to do a praise gathering up in Indianapolis. Although I'd say the best music I've ever enjoyed live is by far the Hamilton play. So the Hamilton play. I love Alexander Hamilton, and I didn't think I'd ever. Oh, like that's rap. fantastic! I didn't think I'd ever like rap music, but that is amazing. That's awesome. You've brought that up before. Yep. That was a really good play. I've never seen that. Ryan? All right, I'm going to strip the culture back out of it. Now that Harold's been in there. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I can't think, top Backstreet Boys. No, I, no, I think so. So, um, so, we took our children to Green Hall, Texas, um, in, in the oldest dance hall in Texas, and, and had front row access to Casey Donahue Band in 2019. So, uh, so being the good parents that we are, we took them to a, a Texas dance hall, uh, and they were, I don't know, at that point in time, they were 15 and 18, maybe so, but a uh, good experience for them to see what it was like Had a little fight breakout behind us. So they got the whole experience. So <laughs> at just the, the opposite hall. of Harold's. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I'm going to drag it down even farther. My wife and I ended up in Aspen, Colorado <clears throat> on a ski trip and neither of us ski, but we had a great time, but. Uh, Kid Rock was doing an outdoor concert at uh, Aspen, Colorado, and uh, we went to this concert, had the best time, and uh, acted like kids and and hung out with a totally different crowd. Um, I had my deer camouflage on with the fleece hat and stuff, and people were like, oh, I probably shouldn't say this, given sort of the people who are listening. But um, uh, one of my one of my stints when I was in Indiana was serving on the uh, Indiana State Fair uh, Commission, and uh, let's just say Kid Rock made it on one of the Indiana State Fair lineups. And I was at that concert, and I don't think he'll ever be invited back. Again. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> at what point into the concert oh. did you like? Oh no! Great. <laughs> <laughs> what? 
<laughs> the kids are covered. We'll, we'll, we'll leave that story yeah. aside. <laughs> well, Harold, can you introduce Beth for us? I would, and I did. I I will tell everyone that I kind of invited myself this morning. I heard Beth was going to be on the podcast today, and I just want to pass along my admiration for what she has done for the state of Indiana. That I first got to know Beth, I think might have been around like 2005, but Governor Daniels had decided to give agriculture a more direct voice in state policy, state government, and uh, established the Indiana Department of Agriculture. And Andy Miller was a first director, but Beth Bechtel was a deputy director. And what they started that time, I was part of a 20-member, I think, governor-appointed uh, board. But what those two started at the time really still extends to today as far as, again, making sure agriculture maintains a voice in Indiana, is a part of policy, and honestly does a lot, even interagency. At times we, we, we get frustrated with DOT or some regulatory agencies, and Department of Agriculture really serves in the interest of agriculture very, very well. She went on from there and went with ACI, an organization that directly deals with agribusinesses in Indiana. She led that group for a number of years. And the other thing I think that really is a capstone to the influence she's had in Indiana was the formation and start of Agrinovas. And she saw a vision to bring in, I think it was really, the research triangle was was kind of the, That's right. the thing that was kind of the grounding of it, but say, can we make the entire state of Indiana an a, a innovation center for technology and agribusiness? And can we make this really a place where Indiana attracts not only research, but investment and actually jobs and industry as well. That's all Beth Bechtel. And she has been as influential and has done as much for Indiana agriculture in my time in this state as anyone I know. Well, that with that introduction, Beth, and then off to, uh, of course, there's Washington, D.C. and that, and then now with the, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations of Deputy Director yeah. General. Yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a different landscape today. Uh, but you know, hearing hearing some of uh, those descriptions from Harold, I'm really struck by how many things that we were able to do together in Indiana are really. I don't know that most people know this. A lot of people I work with wouldn't even know where Indiana is <laughs> on the world map behind me. But I, I often say I, I take pages out of the Indiana playbook and, and I'm really trying to bring a lot of those same uh, ways of working, uh, same priorities, um, same aspects of coordinating. Um, now I just have to do it on a global scale and in a really big organization, which um, doesn't make it as easy uh, as, it, uh, as it once was. Well, Beth, can you tell us, uh, I think we've got a really good uh, background there. Can you tell us about the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations? Yeah, so FAO, you, you got us right, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN. We are the specialized technical agency that's a part of the United Nations that really um, is focused on uh, working to achieve zero hunger. So the sustainable development goals, the 2030 agenda that's before the entirety of the UN system, 
For us, we lead the multilateral systems efforts around food and agriculture uh, resilience, around development, and as a part of that, working to, as I said, eliminate food insecurity and work to reduce poverty um, most of the time in rural and uh, farming areas of the world. We are headquartered uh, in Rome. You've mentioned that. Um, we were founded in 1945 in Hot Springs, Virginia. Uh, and so we were in the U.S. for about five years before uh, as a part of sort of the changing times of the world post-World War II, uh, the headquarters moved here to Italy. Uh, we have 15,000 people in the organization. Uh, 3,000 are here in Rome. The other 12,000 of my colleagues uh, work in 130 country offices um, all over uh, the world, um, with many of those offices with hundreds of people having been there for decades working very closely with national governments, ministries of agriculture, ministries of environment, ministries of foreign affairs, all again, working as closely to country and field level as possible to build food and agricultural productivity and, um, and uh, food security. Wow, that is, that is impressive. So as the deputy director uh, at the FAO, Beth, um, what are some of your day-to-day -day responsibilities? Besides the high ground <laughs> right, podcast. Right, yeah, sure. Right. <laughs> God, if I could only do more high ground podcasts. <laughs> oh, well. I spend, that's, that's a lot of, I, I spend a lot of time in front of the computer. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the world was difficult, obviously, when I first arrived and is increasingly more and more difficult for us in agriculture globally. Um, interesting side note, I came here, Harold was asking me how long it's been since I've, I've, I've been here in Italy. Um, it's going on three and a half years, but the, the this will bring back memories for every person listening. Um, I came here on March uh, 6, March 9 of 2020. It was a Monday and by Friday, Italy was in national lockdown uh, because of COVID. Oh um, you'll yeah. remember the pandemic really had sort of its origins. The hotspot was China. The yeah. next hotspot in the world was Italy. And um, so it was a really difficult starting point uh, to come in because, you know, we had as, as a global agency, we actually had to be responding to people all around the world who were affected by COVID. We had to have response and recovery programs in different countries prepared because, you know, it was a time that, that nobody knew what was coming. But then at the same time, it completely disrupted my arrival or my entry point to the organization because there was no orientation, there was no soft landing, there was no honeymoon period, and there was really also no travel. I mean, for probably almost 18 months uh, before I actually had the opportunity to visit uh, not only the communities, the villages, the farmers that we're working with, but also my own colleagues who are in regional and country offices doing really the the day to day, you know, sort of impact work for the organization. So. 
So a lot of what I do is is administrative. It's uh, it's not always as glamorous as I think some dear friends uh, assume this life might be like. Uh, it's long hours. It's a lot of bureaucracy. It's a lot of getting stuff out of the way in a big hierarchical, difficult institution that is going through a lot of change right now. Um, so the day-to-day -day is is all over the place. I mean, I've got interviews this afternoon. I met with directors who report to me this morning. I had an investment committee meeting over lunch. We've got a briefing with members later at the end of the day on, you know, some new initiatives that we're working on. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a juggling act all the time, and you have to really sometimes force yourself to, I think, remember uh, why you came here in the first place. And it's a big why. It's a why to really make a difference uh, for a lot of very vulnerable, very poor, very at-risk people in the world. And it was also because I was just enough familiar with FAO from my time in Washington, D.C., had this very nice honeymoon from FAO when I was in Indiana. FAO was never really on my radar screen. We weren't working with FAO when Harold described sort of all of these different experiences that I had. But I remember it being a pretty slow, pretty uh, bureaucratic, uh, not too terribly progressive or innovative organization from my time when I was at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And I think I felt like it was an organization that could change. It just needs some people in it to force that change to happen. Well, you think about the commonality of just the, the need for food security. I mean, that's not, that's kind of one thing we can all stack hands on and, and agree in a, in a world that's divided and, and, uh, can't seem to reach consensus on anything. I think food security is one thing and we see the, obviously the news and we think about places in the world, you know, that, that don't have access to clean water or food or reliable food supply. And, um, so I guess let's make it kind of small. You got the, the map behind you of the world in your office. What kind of projects are you working on now? Uh, what, tell yeah. us something that, um, obviously with the global events, with the Ukraine, the breadbasket, of of that region of the world uh what's some of the projects that the uh, food yeah. and agriculture organizations working on now yeah let me let me let me step back really quickly if i might because i i think there's some some really helpful context for the listeners about sort of the functions Good. of fao right a little different than our mission and our mandate to you know be a player in this space of of uh, eliminating hunger, but sort of the, what does FAO really yeah. do, right? I get asked that a lot. Um, and and there's really sort of four uh, key sort of functions I, as I would describe them. And the first one really gets at, in many ways, why the organization was founded, which was in that post-World War II time period, um, people were looking for an organization to kind of do regular surveys of the level of food insecurity and poverty in the world. And so really at our core is we are a public information, market intelligence, market information, agricultural data uh, resource uh, for the world. Um, now, clearly, they're in the U.S. 
there are, you know, obviously numerous either public and private institutions who put a lot of uh, information and data out about commodity supply, demand, production. You know, we track food price inflation in all commodity or major commodities, all parts of the world. Uh, we do analysis of different market trends. And, you know, you need someone doing that for everyone. You need that as a global public good for all of production agriculture on a global scale. So that's one. You need to Second, know where the you need to know home. where the you need to know where the food is, and how much yeah. is there, and where it needs to go. And a lot of times we're working in countries that don't have national statistics services. They're not doing surveys of their farmers. They're not, they, they don't have the machinery or the sophistication that we had even in our own state of Indiana, let alone what the U.S. Department of Agriculture and NAS, you know, have to offer along with all of the private forecasts that happen uh, around yeah. sort of tracing and monitoring, right? So, so that's a very important function and a global service that FAO provides. The second is we are the very sometimes difficult, intense place and forum where global conversations about standards in agriculture can take place. Food safety standards, uh, the Codex Alimentarius, the International Plant Protection Convention, which navigates all of the issues around the trade and plant and plant-related products, sanitary, phytosanitary issues that countries, you know, put in place. Some countries much more sophisticated in their regulations and their approaches to these topics than, than others. And somehow you've got to bring a harmonization to all of that. So we aren't the ultimate decision makers on that. We are the place where the regulators, where the market experts, where the scientists, where the researchers all sort of come together to actually try to advance everyone's and enhance and bring, you know, greater, uh, greater granularity, greater focus to these kinds of standards. So that's number two. Number three is we are deep technical experts in so many parts of agriculture that I never even realized that we have agronomists, we have water and irrigation managers, we have forestry experts, we have fishery and aquaculture experts, we have hmm. land and water uh, technicians, we have agricultural engineers. And these are the colleagues that are in our technical division. So we have whole group of technical divisions in each of these areas of agriculture that are there to really go into countries and help them build from the technical level, right? To give them almost extension, advisory, specialization support if they're trying to build their aquaculture sector or they're trying to incorporate better seed systems or come up with more sustainable cropping uh, production systems. There's a lot of this kind of advice and technical support that is funded by donors. It's not funding that we decide on. It comes from, you know, a variety of our members and donors who help us. But we are in countries all over the world helping implement this kind of technical knowledge to ultimately build localized agricultural production systems. So that's three. And those are really the bread and butter. But number four is getting, Sal, exactly at what you've said, which is very sadly, um, more and more, we are being pulled into emergency and really almost humanitarian response settings. 
And it's because everything just seems to be going wrong right now. It's it's so overwhelming. Uh, the number of issues that we are navigating in hotspots, we call them, all over the world that are either driven by climate change, uh, some other type of disaster, but very sadly, more often than not, yeah. it's because of conflict. It's because of man-made conflict, whether that's Ukraine or whether that's Gaza now, we've seen it in Afghanistan. And what we are finding, I think this is a really important message that I want to leave with you. And, and it's something that I, I've really personalized since I've been here. We use a lot of different global classifications of how to measure the number of hungry people in the world. And, and one of those measures uh, shows us, I won't go into detail it in the interest of time, but it shows us that there are about 258 million people in over 50 countries in the world who are at crisis level of, of, of hunger. Two thirds of those individuals, and this is the part that very few people globally talk about, two thirds of those people are farmers themselves. So, so just, we, we often think about the poor or the most vulnerable as being somehow disconnected from agriculture, maybe living in a rural village or community, but Sal, they're farmers. They may only have one or two goats or dairy cattle. They may have an incredibly small plot of land or just a backyard vegetable or poultry, uh, you know, small operation. But when we as the world haven't figured out how to support farmers to not only feed themselves, their families, their rural villages or their communities, but what you and I know is the mission, the noble mandate of farming, which is to feed the world, then our systems are broken. We're not getting the right support to the right people. So you asked about where we're working. I just came back about three weeks ago from spending a full week in Afghanistan. Incredible visit to some really difficult places, uh, probably one of the most complex countries for anybody to be working with uh, in the moment. And there we are making big progress in bringing food insecurity levels down because FAO is there alongside a number of other UN agencies who are providing direct food assistance, right? Food like from the World Food Program, off the backs of trucks, off the backs of airplanes, water, shelter, all of those kind of emergency responses. But FAO is there making sure that farmers have 50 kilo bags of certified winter wheat seed, that they have all of the right fertilizer and inputs that go along with that seed, that they have specialized animal vaccines and animal feed. And so our role is not direct food assistance. Our role is agricultural technical assistance that allows the people who are the most hungry to not sort of just find themselves on a cycle of one more dollar that's going to just trying to feed them trying to help them feed themselves and get them established with the kind of agricultural tools and innovations and practices that they need to be able to become more productive and hopefully profitable as well and take themselves out of this really difficult, um, you know, place that they find themselves. So you, I mean, with all of that, that you just said, so success to you, is delivering the goods to give that opportunity to someone to 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 start the very basic 
goal of feeding themselves. And then at some point in time, true success is that they begin to be bountiful enough to help others. Is this correct? Is that exactly exactly okay? It's it's this. We talk a lot about humanitarian responses in this UN world and development responses, and and FAO sort of falls in the middle. You're coming in not trying to be a humanitarian organization. We're still a technical agency. We have a really deep knowledge about the intricacies of production agriculture, whether it's crop, livestock, or otherwise. So what we're trying to do is make sure that you build resilience um, for these farmers and their families. You don't want them to be stuck in this cycle of hunger and poverty. That, to be very honest with you, a lot of the money, the global funding that comes from big donors, very much like the United States of America, the European Union, Canada, a lot of the developed countries of the world have historically found themselves being much more comfortable supporting this direct feeding assistance. And it's to the tune of, you know, billions and billions of dollars every year. And what we're saying is, again, the model just isn't working. The crises aren't being resolved. They're becoming more frequent, more intense, more protracted. And so we have to find some ways to put resources and tools into the people most affected so they'll stay, they won't migrate, they won't leave their homes, they'll feel that they can, you know, be uh, productive and profitable. And so this, again, was not a part of the original work expected for an organization like FAO. But today, with all of the crises that are are emerging, this is really becoming one of the the largest areas of delivery of our work um, anywhere. That makes so much more sense to me. I mean, I guess uh, change my mindset. I I kind of had it in my mind as like, okay, I see the you know the FAO as being a provider of these things, but you're not delivering uh, fifty kilos of, of of grain for for feed or food. You're delivering, trying to get the seed and the foundation built uh, so that they can feed themselves. And you said something that really clicked with me about migrating and, and leaving. You know, you look back in the Old Testament, Harold. I mean, when there was famine in the land, they'd all go to uh, go to uh, Egypt, right? I mean, where the Nile was, where the food was, the water was. But to be able to set people up and uh, where they can feed themselves, and that's shocking. That I'd, I'd like to go back to point two, Beth, if I could. And I, I like the notion again. It, it can't be a higher priority than to rather than give them a fish, get, teach them to fish. I, I I love that principle of what you're describing today. But we, I do want to go back because for. For a North American farmer, and again, you're you are very much wired into technology and enabling technology to build better yeah. production and do it in a sustainable, environmentally friendly manner. And for the U.S., mm-hmm. I feel so much confidence we're doing that and doing that well, and we're expanding our yields, our capabilities, and we're doing it in a way that that is is science proven. We have a lot of regulatory agencies, that FDA, EPA, all the FIFRA, that, that ensure that we do this. We know what we're doing before we ever adopt something. But yet, where you're at right now, Ted McKinney, a good friend of ours, probably shows as much fear of as far as what the European Union is doing to thwart that or inhibit that, or in our case, Mexico now, 
And so speak to number two in the standardization issue. It feels like as we improve and have the means to improve not only North American production, but worldwide production, there's people that stop that innovation, that stop that capability. So, so this uh, is a safe place, Beth. <laughs> it's a safe place. But I, one of the things I didn't, I didn't tell you uh, when I was describing the FAO, we have 195 members. Uh, we are much like the UN, where everybody has a vote, every voice counts. And we um, also are an organization that really does its very best to work by consensus. So we have 194 member countries and the European Union as a whole is also a member of FAO. So Harold, what I would say to you is, I mean, yes, we're seeing all of these different uh, national or regional uh, approaches to policies, innovation, uh, you know, sort of directions for agriculture. I mean, is it a forward-looking direction? Is it a backward-looking direction? And, you know, again, I'm, I'm going to, I am going to probably dodge the, the personal opinion on what's the right model, what's the best model, questioning in some ways whether the right answer is really that if there is a one-size-fits-all model, and I don't think there is. But what, what you've raised is in some ways, I think the more important point is it's why a U.S. farmer, a U.S. agricultural organization, and the U.S. government should pay attention to the issues and the conversations that can happen in a place like FAO. Um, it's, it's, it's been really telling for me. I've made a lot of trips to Washington since I've been here because in many ways, my earlier comment about there being really kind of a gap, I think, uh, a, a lack of understanding and a lack of awareness, a lack of engagement in many ways between the U.S., U.S. agricultural groups and FAO. Um, there's a lot of history to that. Again, we don't have time uh, in this call, but um, you know, being here in Italy, uh, even just by virtue of our geographic positioning, puts us in the middle of European organizations and European uh, government officials. And I think over a lot of years, uh, there weren't things that were happening here in our organization that, frankly, some U.S. government decision makers sort of said, this organization isn't going in the direction that we want to see global agriculture going in. But that's changing, I think, very much. And I hope that my ability to uh, bring some different perspectives, I think the vision of our director general is focused on science and innovation and technology. I mean, you know, I, I remember FAO's position on GMOs and biotechnology in the early 2000s. And we basically, the organization wouldn't even really use the word. Um, now we talk about it very openly, along with 
CRISPR uh, gene editing tools, artificial intelligence, future of synthetic biology, future of digitalization of agriculture. So there's a very positive, I think, outlook now in this organization towards science and innovation and also private sector engagement. This is the other one that I really push a lot of my friends and former colleagues in the U.S. to, you know, don't give up on the FAO, right? There's a lot of opportunity here for private sector leadership in terms of this accessibility to projects, to work that we do, to having impact on direction that farmers need to be considering and opened up to um, in other parts of the world. And these are two uh, really significant changes in this organization that um, I do hope U.S. leadership uh, continues. Um, and I hope it's an area where uh, farmers, even in the U.S., why why does an FAO matter to, to me? Um, and you've mentioned policy. I think national security uh, is a really, Sal mentioned the issue of migration. If you look at what's happening on the southern U.S. border, if we can keep farmers in Guatemala and El Salvador and Honduras, it doesn't mean that the migration problem goes away. But we know right now that access to food and water is oftentimes what will maintain and um, can, can be something that keeps peace in a country. And so we have to care about that. And I also am still a U.S. taxpaying citizen. And, you know, so I think there are some cost savings uh, in this particular day and age that we can bring by doing more of this kind of agricultural assistance than what's really expensive direct feeding that we've yeah. just been doing for decades. It's got to change. Yeah, that was, that's great, Beth. And to think, uh, and you're right, I mean, I just there's only so many trucks that you can haul so much food in, and, it, and it's a cycle that you just can't get off of. And I, I got to feel like those places that are hard to get um, fresh water and food to are just as hard to get information and education and um, it's hard to get that in there. So it sounds like we got another side of the, this is a great platform. And that's one of the things that Harold challenged Ryan and I with, with this podcast is to get out information and education uh, on behalf of, of agriculture. And uh, so that's why we're really, we're glad to have you on here because it's really been an education for, for me. And I think for all of us and for our listeners. Um, so Beth, what is, what's one of one of your most proudest achievements is you've been out there and, and uh, I got to feel like some of this mindset and some of the this this change of teaching someone how to fish and stuff it, that kind of seems like it's got a lot of your fingerprints all over it. So what's one of your proudest achievements since you've been out there in the organization? Yeah, I mean, I've 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 probably got a few that I feel like I've been, you know, one of many uh, who have really contributed to some new ways of working for this organization. I'm probably personally really proud of uh, the new spirit that has come to the organization of working with the private sector. That's something that was one of my very first assignments direct from the director general before I even arrived in Rome. And it was a, you're going to write a new private sector strategy for, for the organization. And you know, that's been three and a half years ago. I would have thought we'd be farther along with some really amazing partnerships and 
specific ways of working, but this is a cultural change in this organization of people who just never really trusted the private sector before, right? How can you be profit motivated and care about sustainability? Yeah. The two don't work together. And that was, and that's not just FAO. That's a UN, you know, sort of multilateral, I think very common mindset. What I'm finding is that actually, okay, I probably have some colleagues who think that way, but most of my colleagues here just don't know much about the private sector. They weren't encouraged to attend your events, be on your podcast, co-organize, you know, a, a seminar with you, um, come and visit your place of business, invite your head of R&D or regulatory affairs to come to FAO to meet with our teams. I mean, it just wasn't, it just wasn't encouraged. It wasn't incentivized. And in some cases, previous leadership actually discouraged mm. it very publicly. You know, we're not of the same approach. So for me, I think as a cultural shift of now seeing how much enthusiasm there is and openness from our colleagues in country offices to saying we have the potential to work with this local company or with a global company who can bring innovation or technology, perhaps it's investments or resources. I really feel like that's something that um, it's taken a lot of us. There's a lot of people working on this, but I do feel probably a, a personal sense of pride for, for trying to break through. And then the only other thing I just say, Sal, I think you know this from how I work. I mean, I'm, I'm a I'm a pretty informal, pretty casual, I hope friendly uh, person. And and this organization uh, needed some informality. It, it needed it needed and has needed some leadership and some some senior people who, you know, encourage collegiality and and risk taking and and the comfort in, you know, taking on new responsibilities. We we all have been a very structured, hierarchical, top-down place. And I don't think those would be words that any of you would describe uh, around me. And so if I can take some of my time here and, and crack that a little bit, I, I think that's something that we're doing. I see those changes. And I really also, before I leave here, whenever that is, I, I really want to also be focused on the next generation of talent that comes to an FAO. I, I want, I want a lot of young, enthusiastic, whether they're Purdue, Notre Dame, Indiana, you know, uh, uh, Ball State grads, to think how exciting it could be to make a contribution to an organization like FAO. And how do I get a you know spot there? How do I build a career there? How can I contribute there? And um, those are things that are still to come. I wouldn't call that an achievement yet as much as it is an aspiration, maybe. All right. Very nicely put. Well, thank you for your time. I guess in a, a sort of a, a parting thought, uh, in essence, in respect for your schedule, but sort of in a parting thought, the role of U.S. agriculture in creating this world without hunger and poverty, what would be a quick uh, thought for you to to convey to our neighbors. I mean, we we are so comfortable. Um, uh, so many of us are so comfortable that that we literally fill our days with with uh, activities to lose weight and you know it uh, around a diet that we just have full access to. 
what what is our role in U.S. agriculture, and what should our messaging be um, to help you out? Yeah, I, I think I think I would come back. I wish I maybe had a, a better sort of slogan or or tagline for you, but I think it's farmers helping farmers, um, maybe, and and it's this point that I made earlier. I. I about how many of the people who are suffering the most um, are farmers. And that just that just is heartbreaking to me. Um, you know, thinking about multiple generations of, of families who um, really have made it not just about feeding themselves, but about feeding, the people that um, that are near to them, that are dear to them. And so what I really hope is that there's ways for U.S. agriculture to do this. I think it's through R&D and technological leadership and innovation and through funding and resources that will continue to come from the U.S. But I do worry right now in this state of the world that there is a retrenching uh, that you see happening of of you know national policies really sort of stepping back from the global stage because you know when it's precious resources and you know only enough time in the day and priorities that have to be set. Um, why should I care about the farmers in Afghanistan? Why should I care about this? farmer in, in Uganda or Bangladesh, you know, I've got my own set of issues and I've got problems, you know, paying the bills. And we're seeing now, you know, we, we've seen it to some degree in even U.S. politics. We've seen it with a new election in Argentina. We're seeing it with an election in the Netherlands. There are these, these trends towards more domestic, inward, national-facing uh, priorities. And I'm not here to question those or to start a, a whole new discussion that would take up another podcast. My, 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 I think the thing that matters the most to me, though, is there's something that connects us as a part of agriculture. And I think that really is something that on a human level – uh, really needs to be prioritized and something that we don't lose sight of. Boy, Beth, our, I think our listeners can can hear the passion in your voice whenever you just come weeks weeks away from meeting these farmers out uh, and seeing their plight. And uh, go back to stand by my earlier comment that no matter how much any of us look inwardly and uh, whether you call that uh, – uh, patriotism, nationalism, whatever that might be, as we, there, you can do both, right? There's no reason why, right. why we can't do both. And, uh, I can't think of anybody that doesn't want the plight of someone to improve, certainly when it comes to agriculture and feeding themselves and their neighbors. And, um, so we really appreciate, uh, you being with us today, Ryan, do you have anything else? I do not Harold. Beth, Beth, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, and we're going to keep you on. Thanks for having me. This was, this was extra special. Um, I, I, I'm not sure, you know, I wish you all the best. I hope you get to episode 200. And if I can ever come back for a uh, best of uh, episode, please invite me. <laughs> we certainly will. And our listeners, uh, there's been uh, just global crises and things that have happened. We've, we had to reschedule a time or two and uh, just thank you for making time and uh, that'll wrap up another episode of the high ground powered by premier companies 
Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank you.